and we're back again for the blueprint it's a fantastic day how are you feeling today SJ? oh it's a beautiful day today and we've got a fantastic guest coming on yeah tell me about him well he's my friend adil malik been great friends since my days at imperial college since we spent time there as well james mate this guy he's, he's super modest so he's gonna hate the fact i say this but he is absolute genius this guy is so smart he's doing he's doing some extremely interesting things in the vehicle market by designing actual interior hardware for japanese and other imports so he's going to get into that and i'm really really looking forward to this episode Hey Adam, it's James. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very well, man. I'm sure we are maybe bumped into each other when we're in. Yeah, yeah. I've heard a lot of things about you. Yeah. yeah what have you heard? <laughs> oh man, I don't. I don't wanna. I don't think this should be public information if we go too deep into this. But <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll. Uh, I have to do a podcast where you're going to be my guest. <laughs> <laughs> How you been, man? But, oh, wait, before good, man. you go on, uh, I wonder if that would be a podcast or an interrogation <laughs> with uh, the authorities. Interpol. <laughs> How is it? Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me and uh, chasing me. I guess uh, I think I've I've been. Uh, I guess I came across as quite busy, but uh, I think it's just been uh, one thing after another. And uh, yeah, just I'm glad we've been able to arrange this now. So absolute pleasure. It's a pleasure <laughs> to have you on. Again, definitely a guest worth chasing. What's been What's been keeping you busy anyway, man? What have you been up to? It's just uh, it's just a lot of things, man. Like uh, yeah, I mean the business will talk about that. You know, right now we're having like a like a semiconductor chip shortage. So just sorting a lot of these things out, um, and of course then the PhD uh, paper deadlines, things like that. Uh, I have a trip to Germany coming up in June, then Canada also next month. So preparing for that, papers, just, <laughs> just a lot of things. Yeah. Are those trips uh, for work? Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, we have, uh, we're collaborating with a few people uh, with regards to my PhD. So there's a group in, in um, Canada and there's another group in, in, in Germany. So we're just, yeah, preparing a lot of paperwork, publications, things like that. Nice. Wow. What's, your, what's your thesis on? So uh, my thesis is on where trying to work on sort of um, next generation storage devices. So just like you have a USB, for example, USB storage or uh, storage in your phone, we're trying to come up with more energy efficient um, alternatives. So it's just researching what kind of materials we can use and how we can do that reliably and things like that. Oh, sounds great. And kind of, do you know that off the top of your head, what kind of real world applications this would have? So as I said, so the main, of course, uh, application would be storage so i mean if we can sort of crack it uh, it's very promising so the idea is that the new devices we're trying to play with they're extremely dense in terms of what they can store so um, i think the estimate is something like if we can successfully build them then in the size of a fingernail you can store um the full capacity like the full library of the u.s congress which is which is huge wow um and then the other of course the application is that and the we were when we were playing with these devices we realized that they actually behave a lot like our understanding of how the human brain works how this neurons work in our brain so then the idea is can we actually also start to design a, a computer that performs uh, like our brain and uh, the the benefit there is that what we've realized is uh, that our human brain is so much more efficient than any computer you can think of. And it 
does such so much more complicated tasks so much more efficiently. Uh, so we're just trying to trying to copy that basically in uh, in these new in these new hardware in in these new devices that we're we're trying to design. Um, so yeah, a lot of promising things on paper. <laughs> well, man, man, that's quite interesting. Is it in any way, or do you take any research from what Elon Musk is doing with Neuralink? So we're we're working on the same thing, right? So actually, right. our people were quite pissed off because um, our research group we've been fucking like struggling with this and like uh, working on this for ages, and we don't uh -huh. get so much hype and PR. And suddenly, Elon Musk is on it, and then suddenly things are getting so much more interest and PR, which is good. But yeah. the things that he he has been getting a lot of uh, sort of PR for. Um, in the in the industry and in academia, we know it's actually not cutting edge, right? It's not right. the most cutting edge thing, but because Elon Musk is doing it, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it's uh, got much more attention. So it's the same thing. So Neuralink, right? So trying yeah. to come up with um, devices that can interface with the brain. Uh, so some of our research group is working on, on those sort of things, and then uh, I'm working on something slightly different. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's like that classic uh, Elon Musk effect, really, isn't it? Where yeah, he, exactly. He or a very yeah. popular person gets interested in something. I'm sure if you track the Google searches of that particular mm. thing, they probably yeah. ro rock it up. And from yeah. that, a significant percentage of people develop a pretty keen interest and fascination with what's going on. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I guess, and this is uh, this is it that uh, if you're sort of revered or respected in the uh, in the community then and if you are now interested in something then suddenly people think that oh there has to be something about this because this person who we respect and and we sort of look to for guidance if he's interested in something then surely there is something here that that's worth listening to um, so yeah the same so it's it's been that thing that our whole area has got more interest uh, because of Neuralink yeah, this is the sort of next generation things that we, we think that we need to work on, you know, mm -hmm, trying mm -hmm. to interface with the brain, trying to copy the way the brain works. Because if you look at the numbers, uh, the way the it's just unbelievable how efficient the brain is compared yeah. to our computers. So there's something missing in our understanding of, of these things that we've just not been able to even come, come close, really. Trying to essentially synergize the way computers compute things with the insights you gain from the human brain. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, what we feel is that with our computers, the the actual paradigm that we're following is completely, not wrong, but completely different to what the brain does. Right. I mean, that's the only way to explain how we the brain is so much more efficient than what, the way we're doing it, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, and then this is the thing, like, it's just trying to understand how on earth does... Um, the brain does these sort of thing. And then the other interesting thing, of course, is that, for example, in a conventional computer, if you have one part of the computer that becomes faulty, the whole computer dies. But mm. in our brain, we have millions and millions of cells and neurons. And even if one of them sort of dies, which it does, so some cells die, some then get replenished, uh, we still function without sort of pausing or we, we still function without losing memory and things like mm. that. So how the hell does that happen? Yeah. Um, we don't really understand how, how these things actually happen. So um, it's interesting. Yeah, I think yeah. a, higher, a higher level point there as well is like uh, not to do with the, the essentially the nature of the research, but what we're talking about with cer certain areas of research getting popularized by popular figures. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It kind of shows the, res the sp responsibility and the effect that popular people can have on the way that science is directed. Because naturally with that interest comes a lot more mm. funding, comes a lot more exactly. development, comes a lot more eyes to the topics that are being researched and hence Absolutely. more development. So 
I mean, there's probably a number of issues in the modern day that are pertinent to the the benefit of society moving forward. Mm-hmm. And it, it's almost as, it's almost like these kind of spearheads of the tech world have a responsibility to to place interest in those areas so more people get interested and, and more activity happens in them. Yeah, exactly. And that's why it's so important for these people to to have a vision and then um, I guess sometimes people accuse Elon Musk of, for example, just fucking around, right? Yeah. But, uh, but well, when he gonna, does... You, you poke the bear now, I know he's going to come after us, man. <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is at the end of the day, he he has a good vision for certain things. Like, I mean, for example, the way Tesla beat a lot of the big boys, Mercedes-Benz, BMW, to, to mm. electric commercial electric cars, that's incredible. And even with the Neuralink thing. So he he, he identifies things correctly. So that, I guess that's the point, as you as you were saying, that yeah. these people do have a great responsibility because often we feel in fun, in in our area that the money is handed down by people who don't necessarily understand um, the research. Right? They want to see an impact of okay, you want money for this research, but is this going to have an impact on the world? Mm. Now, the way they construct their understanding of what's important is influenced more from these sort of conventional cultural things that are going on. So you know now now that. Elon Musk is talking about something and it's sort of subconsciously everybody's also not thinking about it, then I guess it's more easier to to get funding for that and, and things like that. No, so, uh, yeah, so it's very important for people to drive essentially our cultural, for these people to drive cultural awareness. <laughs> so <laughs> I have a, qu- I have a quick question, Adil. Yeah. Before, before we dive into what your personal business does, mm. how the idea came about and just the, the kind of backstory there, so our yeah. listeners can kind of understand what you've been doing in the business world. Uh, mm. But just circling back on this point, in terms of important topics of research for the future, yeah. if I were to ask you, what do you think are the three most important topics of research in the te- technology world moving into the future? What would, what would your answer be? I guess, you know, I guess I'm biased, but one of them would be, again, related to the area I'm, I'm, I'm working in. I think, <laughs> well, the thing is, you see, we, we understand that you've probably been hearing about this thing that, you know, computing power is now saturating. It's saturating because we can't shrink things down more in terms of, in terms of our processes and we need to somehow come up with processes that can perform better, yeah. uh, have more dense storage, so things like that. So so going going ahead, we need to talk, think about, of course, how... Um, we'll get that breakthrough. How will we make our computing more efficient? Um, and uh, right now we're trying to think of being inspired by nature, by, by, our, by ourselves, by our brains. So I think um, computing would be, of course, it's always on the roadmap, but I think that's that's a big thing. So we need to somehow um, see how we'll make that next big breakthrough in terms of a paradigm or for compute power, for efficiency um, and things like that, right? So that would of course be one. Uh, the next one would, I guess they're quite cliches, but again, I think they're very important is, is energy. I guess now we're all moving away from, from, from sort of fossil, fossil fuels, right? And we've seen uh-huh. how detrimental just, um, if you're too dependent on that, how detrimental that can be. I mean, look, let's look at the, the war currently happening in Russia. Right? Europe wants to sanction them, but they can't because they get a lot of their gas. I think it's up to 20, 30% of gas from, from Russia. So, um, so you see, this is this is an issue. So, what is going to be the next breakthrough breakthrough in energy production? How will we get it more efficient? Uh, I don't think we were just quite ready to sort of wean off uh, fossil fuels completely. So, so again, I think there there's a lot of breakthroughs um, breakthroughs in that regard. And do you have, uh, a, start, do you have a particular start on that, Adam? 
Do you have a particular opinion on where kind of clean energy will come from? I think nuclear is the way forward. I think nuclear mm. is the way forward. Um, and uh, I think the only issue, of course, is that there is there is a question of, of about its safety, right? Um, yeah. You hear about uh, Chernobyl, of course, and then Japan, that if these things go wrong, then you've basically fucked a whole generation up. <laughs> um, yes. I mean, even more than that, right? For, for a good 50 to 100 years, you, you screwed it up. Yeah. Even in um, Chernobyl right now, when Russia invaded that area, a lot of their soldiers have actually become sick of, of radiation poisoning just because of the dust yeah. that's been that's been sort of thrown up by by trucks, right? So, and this is such an old incident. Uh, the same thing goes with Japan. Like all the all that water has been sort of polluted. Yeah. Uh, so there are these problems, but uh, but I think nuclear will be the way forward. So, do you have a um, do you have a stance on you know something that's happening in the US fairly recently? Is that kind of people think we're going to move off this kind of grid model and onto mm. more of like a home model. So for example, you have a solar panel on the top of your house, creates yeah. energy throughout the year. You can store it in, um, in batteries within your own home when it's not sunny out. How do you feel about that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Th- that definitely is, I think the way forward. And I think a lot of companies have, countries have, have adopted that. Mm-hmm. I think the, the main issue is, is having Again, this is another, actually, that's a good point you bring to that. I think I would actually call that the third thing, that it's not only about energy production. It's also about energy storage, right? Right. If you think about these, a lot of people are talking about uh, renewable energy, right? So solar and and wind. But the problem with that really is that there is a disconnect when it comes to supply and demand. So, for example, solar is always available, let's say, when when the sun's out, but you don't necessarily need to use that energy, right? So you need now very efficient storage. Um, And this is a problem that, how can, even though I can stick solar panels on, that's good. But what about storage? Like, will I be able to afford the yeah. correct batteries? Because that's where the main cost is. And can every house afford to have this? Well, yeah, um, this is why so much funding is going into battery technology right now. Yeah, exactly. I yes, mean, yeah. Um, this is exactly why. That we need, it's not only having the production, but we also have to store it. So that's why currently the model is that, look, we can't afford to store it at, at everybody's house, right? It's too expensive and it takes yes. too much space. So let's um, inject that back into the grid where some centralized infrastructure can store it. Um, so I think that is quite exciting. And, and a lot of countries um, have uh, have started it. Um, I know in Pakistan, they've also uh, started it back home. Yeah which is quite interesting. So, uh, so yeah, I think that that is the way forward, but again, storage would be, would be the next big, big concern. I would I agree. Little... I think, I think the development of batteries over the next 10 years, that will be key. Absolutely. Even with cars, for example, um, how fast can you charge these things? Um, oh, I mean, the technology is going up all the time, right? Yeah. I mean, exactly. We're talking so, like two, three times you, you would have seen in the last kind of year or two, the uptake of EV has been tremendous. Mm. Uh, people coming out of the pandemic, people being more aware of kind of sustainability, environmental issues, kind of more of the middle class, say, flocking towards electric vehicles as their first purchase or their set, maybe their second car. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's the trend that's going to continue. But as you said, we're now seeing new technologies like, for example, sodium batteries mm. as opposed to lithium ion batteries. Um, but I think in my, in my own research on batteries, the issue is always kind of scalability. It's how do yeah. we get these things to mass scale? So it's exactly. like, it might yeah. be cheaper, yeah. it might be cheaper, it might be more efficient and this and that on a small scale, but how can we get this production level up? For example, yeah, exactly. sodium, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for example mm-hmm. I, I, there's kind of a lot of recent press on sodium batteries, which is kind of seen as a kind of middle ground between lithium mm-hmm. ion and solid state, which is hopefully where we eventually want to get to. 
Yeah. And you know, it is cheaper. Sodium is like kind of a thousand times more abundant than lithium as well. It's mm. everywhere. We have, you know, borderline infinite amounts of it. The question is, how can we then kind of create these factories, have it at scale, get it around the world, get the supply chains up and running? Yeah, yeah. This is this is the, this is the main issue with a lot of these things. Like because now I've been started to expose in in the in academia and, and about these research topics. This is exactly the problem that you might have this one paper or one case study where they've created these batteries that are so much more efficient. But yeah. the thing is, are they viable from a commercial perspective? Absolutely. Can you Absolutely. can you set up those those plants? Um, can you can you yeah. run an efficient uh, supply chain um, to, to to sort of get these things? reliably to consumers and this is this is the issue this is the issue yeah it, go, it goes with almost everything right even on a small scale if you're starting your own business you can have mm. the best idea but it's all about the execution it's yeah, all about absolutely. how you go to market yeah yeah absolutely and uh yeah i guess we'll talk about this and i think when you operate at different scales the problem is is, is obviously very different yeah um and i'll uh i just talk about how because my business was slightly i, I would say smaller scale and um, yeah. i found it quite difficult to when you're getting started, you don't have much capital. So how do you get the ball rolling with 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 a small amount of money? Um, because a lot of these manufacturing things, as you know, they cost uh, a lot. Um, so yeah, yeah I think this is another it's big common, It's common advice to say, don't go with hardware. Um, yeah, exactly. I was going to... Um, which you've completely rebuffed, which is quite impressive. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, yeah, so I guess this is the point that I think my business is quite unconventional in, um, in, in this day and age, right? Because I think the, in the 70s and 60s, you hear about People like Steve Wozniak uh, from Apple and and a lot of other people literally just um, starting these hardware businesses, but going to stores, buying parts, starting these hardware businesses in their garage. Uh, but of course, <laughs> nowadays people think that that model is not viable. And I think there is some truth to it. But I think the, the the lesson here is that you can always find a niche around you of an appropriate scale that you can tap into. And Adam, um, do you want us to then now kind of come to that point? Going to formally introduce your business and a bit about yourself as well, how you started it and how your journeys look. Because so far, our listeners know to probably read a blurb about you before they listen to the podcast. They know you've done a PhD. We've, done, we've dug into some views here, but so what? What is your? Tell us about your business and tell us a bit about your background and how you how you managed to start that and how the journey's been so far. Sure. Yeah. So uh, my business is uh, mainly about um, designing these bunch of electronic hardware for for cars, right? Mainly for imports from from the states, from Japan, from China, and uh, this um, this hardware that I'm talking about is really not something that a consumer level would be exposed to, right? So it's more about you know, installers and people who import cars, and uh, yeah, mainly sort of mechanics and and workshop. And they would install these in the cars, and the consumer wouldn't really see that. Um, and these the, the, these hardware is essentially required to get these cars to run on UK roads, basically, right? So you've probably heard about things like people tune their cars, ECUs, and they tune their cars for to change performance parameters and things like that. So uh, the hardware that that I design is basically that it it connects into these cars and it tunes their parameters to make them more appropriate for for UK roads. That's fascinating. Um, how did how did you spot that gap in the market? So, uh, so, so the way they started was it's quite an interesting story. Is I, I guess I'll I'll start this from from right at the beginning because there are, I think there are a few lessons that I learned along the way. So this business started when I was in my A levels, around about my A levels, and uh, <laughs> wow. I. Uh, so what had happened was we had moved from Pakistan to the UK permanently. And um, I, during my A-levels, I had nothing to do, basically. And my dad had a car dealership. 
so this is the first lesson that I learned that I, so I used to be just sort of chilling at, at at home doing nothing and my dad told me that you know why don't you come to come to the car dealership and just sit there and talk to customers and talk to people and I said dad I want to be an engineer what am I going to do sitting here and talking to customers I don't want to be a salesman right I was very naive and my dad said that you know no it's, it's if you just talk to people you know opportunities can can come by and I didn't really quite understand what that meant or how that works but I started going to to the car dealership and I started sitting there started talking to people one day uh, a gentleman comes along and uh, we start talking and turns out that he is actually um, a car importer and he also um, is quite sort of ahead of the market right he tries to bring bring in cars here that legally you can't bring in cars right so he does a lot of paperwork around them um, and obviously he needs to so, sort of change them electronically to to be able to to conform to the roads here. So he started talking about a few cars that he wants to bring bring in and there's a reasonable market for that. And he said, you know, I can't bring them in um, because we don't well, have- What were the cars out of interest? Uh, so these are cars like, uh, they're not really here in the market. And I guess you won't recognize the names, but they're mainly SUVs, uh, Japanese and Chinese SUVs from, from, from known manufacturers like Toyota and Nissan. But mm. so they sort of- I don't know why, but a lot of these car manufacturers, they don't introduce certain types of cars here Absolutely, in the UK. Yeah. So uh, mainly seven-seaters, eight-seaters, um, very luxurious, right? And uh, yeah, so it's, yeah, it's to do with kind of the European market, right? It's uh, exactly very, yeah. very much typically aimed at the US market. You see like a, obviously over kind of second half of the 20, 21st, uh, 20th century even, there's a huge mm. influx of kind of East Asian cars into the yeah, US. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. cars, so, cars built purely to cater for those markets as well. Yeah. So there are a lot of these cars that, you know, you just can't find that that market segment here in the UK. So a lot of people okay. want to import them. Uh, and you can often get a good deal um, on these as well. So we started talking and he said, you know, these, there's this thing and uh, you need to uh, electronically modify it. And uh, that's why we can't import them. So uh, so I said, OK, I'll have a go, you know, and at that stage I had I had no idea of what what's involved, but I was interested in electronics and nothing to do. So I said, okay, I'll have a crack at it. And uh, he also, uh, I mean, bless him, he was very supportive. And he said, you know, well, I have nothing to lose. I have a car here, which I can't sell because, well, it's not legal. So I'll just park it up at your at your driveway <laughs> and just have a crack at it. You know, if you can crack it, then, then so be it. So, uh, so that summer, I basically spent totally like- Sorry, how, how old were you? I was about- uh, well, about 17, 16, 17. Wow. Say it louder for the people at the back. <laughs> no, so, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm a prodigy. It's just that or anything. It's just that I've been, I've been <laughs> doing <laughs> No, no, no. But what I'm saying is that, you know, when you say, oh, I've been doing this at 16, people get the wrong idea. But the yeah. the idea is I've, I've, I've actually been doing electronics from a very young age. My my grandfather was actually uh, a electrical engineer for the Navy. And he actually trained here in Southampton. Uh, so, um when I was very little, I sort of got exposed to these things, right? Uh, so I've always been tinkering around and I sort of know my way around things. But yeah, so that's why my background at that age. So it wasn't that I had no idea what electronics is. I, I was, you know, I had some experience. Mm -hmm. uh, so I got started at that. And uh, so that summer, I literally just totally disassembled the car like, electronically, right? And um, hooked up my computer to it and then just trying to study how it works and how, how to reverse engineer this. Because you see all of these technologies that I'm talking about, they're not something that the manufacturer discusses or discloses. They're not even mm -hmm. something a mechanic would know, right? It's, it's a level of abstraction much below that. It's 
how the car was engineered. Yes. So you have to literally just get your head stuck in there and try to reverse How did you actually do that? What did that process involve? When you say you, so, you plugged your computer into a car, like for most people, that just sounds like some sort of hack, hackery yeah, sorcery. Yeah. So, so basically, um, the, the thing is, since about 2002, there was a law that was passed um, in Europe. And uh, that basically mandated that all of these cars have to be essentially digital, digitally diagnosable, right? So if you've probably seen that, if you ever take your car for an MOT or if you have some error codes or, or some, some warning lights on your, on your car, the first thing a mechanic does is they plug in like a device that goes mm. uh, to a port that's in all cars now after 2002. It's a standard port. Um, okay. And once you plug in that device into your car, there's a fixed standard and the car electronically communicates with, with that device. And it tells uh, the, the technician that, okay, I have the following errors, error codes in my car. Uh, What's the name of the standard? So the standard is called OBD. Okay. Okay. So it's onboard diagnostics. And the idea is that the car is able to diagnose itself to a large extent and say, uh, my oxygen sensor is not working, or I feel that a certain plug is, is not firing or, or things like that. So it's, it's right, a okay. very, very comprehensive list of diagnostics. You'll be surprised that um, there are about a few thousand of these error codes in every car. So when you take your car up to a mechanic, uh, he or she don't have to just spend time trying to see what's wrong with it. All they do is they plug in that device and that basically narrows things down and says... And then the most is- cars come with like an OBD manual that tells you what the error codes mean. So it's a standard. So it's, it's a ah, standard. Okay. And, okay. and uh, I mean, if you go on eBay right now, right, you can actually buy this device for like 20 quid and you can plug it into your car and it'll tell you what the error codes are. And often what people do when, when they try and sell their car and they're a bit shady, you can also ask the car to hide its warning messages. So suppose you have like a, like a check engine light, right? You can actually erase it. And people do that. They erase that message and then they sell their car. Yeah. And they disappear. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and wind back the Mars as well while you're at it. <laughs> yeah, I know, that's exactly. funny actually. I was in an Uber the other day, just pulling up on the way back from mm. work, and yeah, we pulled up behind a really nice 2014 Nissan GTR white. Mm. I think it had been slammed as well. It just looked really sexy, you know. Yeah. And the driver said, you know, one of those things. If I had 18, 90 grand, I caught one of those. Um, mm. and you could just plug a laptop in, and you can get it up to 800, 900 horsepower. Yeah, uh, is he talking complete bollocks or? Is that, no, this is exactly what the sort of stuff I do, right? This is exactly the sort of stuff I do. Exactly. So, yeah. uh, as I said, all of these cars are actually. So, if you actually every car since two thousand two is basically digital, right? Everything is being controlled by a computer. There, all these sensors are digital. They give signals to a central sort of computer on board, and then mm-hmm. that computer controls everything. So, uh, what when these people say that you can ram the horsepower up to eight hundred, nine hundred, that's what what they mean. So, Nissan have have decided that, you know, to prolong the, the life of the engine, uh, we won't let the car exceed this temperature and hence this horsepower, for example. And, and this is the fuel efficiency that we have to, to keep. Wow. Um, so is there some kind of argument there that we need to build it beyond its capabilities such that it's not always running at maximum capacity? Yeah. And then, the, but the main thing, of course, is it, this is just a regulate uh, sort of a problem with regulations, right? So, yeah. for example, here to drive a certain car in central London, you need to have certain emissions. Now, the same car, um, what they often do is they might tweak it so that the emissions always stay under a certain metric. So they, yeah. then, then the car is allowed to go. So this is a big scandal that happened with, with Volkswagen, right? Yeah, this is yes. exactly what they I were doing, Wolf. that they were literally just tuning it. So you know what they were doing? So whenever you would plug the car into the OBD port, 
it would detect that and it would turn the uh, the wow. emissions down right yeah so in principle you can do anything you want um yeah. digitally with, with these things right so what what you're effectively saying and i actually never knew this is that once you get into the car's mainframe you can just rewire it to your own desire of per, whatever parameterization that that it has in in theory yes but I, as i said it's not that simple like cars don't they don't advertise how to do it every manufacturer does it a of bit course. differently you, um, you need you need to be a 16 year old prodigy in other words <laughs> <laughs> no you need to you need to spend some time understanding how these these signals are and it's it was quite interesting because a lot of these things are essentially also they have a format they're not quite encrypted but they are sort of obscured and you have to sort of figure out what the signals mean right so for example if i plug in a device now into the car and i start sending it messages to go faster or turn the horn on or turn the doors door locks on it's not going to listen to my message because it'll know it's it's rubbish but you can sort of construct your message in a way that the car thinks that it's actually its own sensors talking you see what i mean yeah uh, and then you can trick it so yeah you can do a lot of these things with um with these cars so have you guys have used have you used Zipcar for example Zipcar oh, or any other Oh yes oh yes I, I, I asked Zipcar. that question for these motherfuckers I've been paying through the nose oh my days tell you Adam since I got it in January I've been rinsing it I'm talking I haven't even been in the tube in about three months man Oh Lord. honestly what, what, yes what so, in particular so for example of course these cars now when you drive the car around they have diagnostics that are being sent back to the company right and they know how much you've driven and things like mm. that so of course that car doesn't come with that functionality to sort of send that all all that data and that telemetry back to to zipcar but what these what these devices do is you can plug this into the obd port and then it can start reading the things like the car's speed the car's revs the gears and you can collect that data and you can send that off to wherever you want so this is how people do fleet management for example yes. uber or any other um, rent-a-car company, they have these devices. This is how, actually, this is how the insurance companies also work. You know, the box insurance companies, this is that how they do it. Yeah. They, they plug it in and then that's how they detect mm. your speed. So in theory, if yeah, you're- I always, electronic... I always thought that was bullshit. I mean, I never got called out for all the shit I've done. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky you, yeah. <laughs> but you can you can you can you can, you can fuck around with it, right? You can plug yeah. in things, you can, you can um, change the data and things like that. So- um, so yeah, so this is how it all started. So it was just me um, sitting with a computer trying to understand how these how these things work. And once I understood that, I sort of designed a prototype that connected into, into a car. So um, where does I, your where does your device that you created then sit in this uh, sort of uh, stack? So you, it's you put uh, it inside the car. Do you connect? Yeah, yeah. It's, by it's the like port? it's like a, it's almost installed inside, like behind the dash, for example. Okay. Yeah, and and it sort of interfaces with the ECU. Yeah, that that's how that's how it works. And then now, once you start driving your cars, the parameters are tuned as per as per UK UK rules. And then when they do an, like a test on the car, the car is going to pass. So um, so Adil, just quickly, when installing this into a car, is this done in a factory? Where is this done? No, so this is this is this can be done by any sort of mechanic, local sort of mechanic, okay. who, um, electrician essentially for a car who knows how to wire things up, right? So people who yeah. install things like aftermarket stereos and, and, and lights and things like that, they can easily do it. Um, and that, and these are the sort of people who mostly um, do it, right? That that they install these these devices. Um, so 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 yeah, that's how it started. I designed a prototype and um, and I tested it and and it and it worked. So that's how it 
how it got started, but it was a fun journey, you know, like trying to understand how these cars work, trying to reverse engineer these cars and, and see see how these things uh, actually work. I was surprised how unsecure these cars actually are in terms of the signals inside, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember while I was experimenting with this, I could like turn the horn on or off. I could make the car break. I could do all sorts of stupid shit like... This is like, this is like watchdogs, Adil. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So it was actually quite dangerous. I remember some of my early prototypes were like, I would have gone to jail by the because, <laughs> <laughs> because I would be like driving on the highway and then suddenly it would just stop the car or suddenly my dash stopped working or suddenly the steering gets stiff uh, or suddenly I've screwed the gearbox up, you know? So this was a process where I almost managed to destroy a few cars that are worth... 16 17 grand you know wow. so uh, uh james, james here has that in common with you actually he, <laughs> he, he's managed to nearly destroy a few 16 17 grand cars as well as well as my life <laughs> okay that's interesting right so then tell, tell me like what does your business model look like today how many people do you hire who are you working with how much time does it take up in your lifestyle because obviously from the beginning of our conversation we know you're doing a phd you're a busy yeah. guy you're traveling a lot on research trips. Mm. So what place does this business have in your life at the moment and how much work goes on uh, week to week? Yeah, sure. I mean, to, to get to that, I guess I'll start off a bit with how how this started to get going, right? So once I've, of course, designed the prototypes, as you said, I think at first it was quite a funny story that when I started selling these, it was, again, like it was something out of a old story you would hear from the 70s for someone like Steve Wozniak or something that I literally had my my dad my siblings in the gar- in our like garage and they were literally just cutting wires wiring things up assembling things <laughs> uh, and I, w- I was selling these but of course as the volume starts to get get more and more and it gets out of your hand you can't ask your family to do free labor mm-hmm. uh, uh, so yeah that's so then the next step was trying to get a get a supply chain working to get these things assembled and or have enough automation in my own setup to, to do them myself, but in an automated yeah. way. So um, in terms of how I managed and that- what that age was, were you when you were getting the supply chain set up? I think the the whole R&D type thing took me about, about six months, I would say six months to a year. And then as soon as that happened, I started to try and sort the supply chain out to get it manufactured. So you, you were like 18, 19 at this uh, time? Yeah, around about that, yes. And what, how was the... Because disassembling a car and identifying how it works is what was yeah. one type of skill set required to do that. Yeah. Particularly, uh, uh, in the, well, the technically intelligent skill set, but then speaking to suppliers, negotiating deals, and explaining your your stance in business is a completely different skill set. Yeah. Requiring yeah, a lot more soft skills. Um, so, absolutely. And I think this is where I learned a lot because I think I used to think a lot like an engineer, and I still do. And and because you have a good technical understanding of a product, I, at first, used to assume that, you know, everybody else would also understand this because it's so simple. But then when you start talking about, when you start taking your product to someone who's also reasonably competent, like, let's say, like an electrician would install that, I was surprised that, no, you know, I have to really make sure that I dumb it down in terms of technical skills. You know, the, the end consumer, I can't, assume that they have any technical skills, even though they do technical stuff like installing these in cars. I remember as simple things like color coding the wires, sometimes if I would change a color, I would think, oh no, electrically it's the same thing. But then other people would be like, 
how the hell do we even begin to install this, you know? So, um, yeah, it was a lot of understanding and transitioning on from thinking from as an engineer to thinking, okay, someone is going to use my product. This is their level of technical skills and I need to pitch that at that. Um, now, that was quite interesting because my whole supply chain, I built it actually in, in Pakistan. So it was a lot of trips going back and trying to find people who can who can do that. And I think that's uh, an interesting thing we can talk about in terms of, of, of if you have links in countries like India and Pakistan, uh, you can leverage uh, a lot of the affordable and ch- sort of cheaper manufacturing that you can you can get there. I remember, Suraj, you were doing uh, T-shirts. Was that in India or was that um, in Ireland? It was in Ireland. No, that was in Belfast, unfortunately. I think we did a quick two-minute segue to talk about that business, if you don't mind, <laughs> SJ. <laughs> <laughs> Oh me, well that was me back in uh in university. I started printing uh funny jokes on t-shirts mm. and selling them to to the students. I think we used to have uh, a lecture watching site called Panopto, and obviously everyone <laughs> heard of the classic phrase in Netflix and chill. Well, I think Imperial students were probably doing more more Panopto than Netflix, so <laughs> I adopted the uh, Panopto and Chill, and then we started selling those around college. And uh, I remember that actually very quickly the point at which i felt that uh, this this is a, a moderate success is the one that i was walking through university and a guy that i never saw never met never spoke to walked past me wearing a, a panopto and chill t-shirt <laughs> and i was like nice right. <laughs> yeah, because of this guy because you see in our year that was, that was sj's think... i've made a moment <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's when because i retired we... from being an entrepreneur i started i wanted to give the other guys a chance to you know, prove themselves <laughs> <laughs> been there done that oh no I remember we were two India, like we were two people from like Pakistan, India in the class. And because his business got quite popular, people used to think I'm that I'm him, right? And then people <laughs> and say, Oh, are you that Indian brown guy who sells the t-shirt? I'm like, Fuck's sake, that's it not was, me, that's Raj. <laughs> dude, it was uh, it was Nusinki's, our lecturer as well. Yeah. He 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 came up to Adil once and James, he just comes up to him and he says to him, So how's the t-shirts going? <laughs> and Adil just looked at I think you just what what happened then? You just looked at him like, what the hell are you talking about? He was no, he was literally like, can I have that t-shirt? I was like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> you, you, I mean, your math lecturer comes up to you during like a, like a tutorial. Yeah, essentially, you're like, just strip. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking, what the fuck's going on? And then I connected to it and was like, oh shit, you, you, you think I'm that other brown guy, right? <laughs> the, other, the only other <laughs> <laughs> and then I told him uh, respectfully that no, that's not me. Uh, he was quite a, he was quite apologetic, but uh, but yeah, I was happy to be confused uh, with Siraj. You know, like, oh, what a daughter, right? <laughs> uh, to claim that I have that business, but but again, I remember when he was starting this up, we were discussing that you know because if you're doing something like related to to shirts or textile in general, uh, Indian Pakistan is is the place to be because. Yeah. Um, the quality there. Most of these big brands that you that you see, um, all of them have get their clothes from either India, Pakistan, or Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where all the that's where it is. So because certain things are a lot more affordable if you get them manufactured there, and this yeah. is what my experience has been. So I have a very interesting story about my business that. When I started, of course, uh, selling these things, so you can think that it's it's almost like an electronic circuit board, and somehow you need to now sort of package it properly, right? Now, the first thing I used to do, I used to literally just sort of get some duct tape and put it around it. But when you start selling it to someone, immediately when someone looks at that, 
Yeah, they see the duct tape and they're thinking, what the hell are you trying to sell me? Yeah, yeah. What are you trying to tape a bomb to my car, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Just just a guy walking around with a box full of wires. Hey, can I see? Can I I open up your car there for a second? I need to attach this in your car. Not, make, not making it very easy for yourself, are you? So, uh, so of course, that you see, this is, again, a disconnect between an engineer thinking and someone who's trying to sell something thinking. Mm-hmm. In my head, I was thinking, all I need to do is stop this from, like, touching other metal pieces of, of the car. So duct tape is fine. But when someone looks at it, it doesn't really instill confidence, and then they think it's cheap. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, Whereas if you now together. have it in a box, yeah. you can sort of leverage the associated value with that product. So the next big thing was, okay, let's try and design a actual proper plastic box for it. And you'll be surprised how difficult that is if you are starting from a, from a small scale business, right? So at this point, I didn't really have much money um, to, to begin with and to start this and uh, getting a customized box built for, for something that you sell is actually quite expensive. The initial cost for that is actually quite, quite high because the way these things work is with a process called injection molding. So you design your, your case or your box or whatever you want that's plastic, and then you submit those files to a, to a die maker, right? And what they do is they take, take a piece of steel and they cut the shape of your object in that. And then they use that as a mold. And every time you need a, you need a copy, they just inject plastic into that mold and give you a copy. Right. Now, the thing is, all of this stuff is done electronically. So it's, these are machines that you give it like a big block of steel and it cuts your part into that. You can imagine that that's very, very expensive. I'm talking like, I mean, there was no question I could get it done from the UK, right? No question. It's way too expensive. And uh, these things are only really viable if you start selling things in, I would say, 100,000 quantity, right? Yeah. That's how you recover the cost for, of, the actual, uh, of the actual tooling process. So there was no way at that stage I could get it done here. And here they've also, they don't do anything cheap. They don't do cheaper processes. They, everything's automated. So they have to use a computerized machine to cut a block of steel. They can't do it anywhere else. So I was thinking, and how the hell do I manufacture these boxes? The other option was to use something like a 3D printer, which is quite famous now. But again, these things are very slow. And if you're talking about maybe a few thousand quantities a month, it's really not viable to do that either. So I need a way of somehow manufacturing these, these boxes in a, in a cheap way. And that's where I went to Pakistan to, to try and sort that out. And that was an amazing experience because the people there are so different and they're so open to do anything that, you know, can make them a bit of money, right? No matter if it's, uh, if it's going to take a lot more time. So I went to Pakistan and I started to, to ask around. Yeah. And I stumbled upon this guy who was actually, his, his past background was essentially this thing. So when Pakistan was sort of a new country, a lot of these companies were starting to come into Pakistan and he actually got these molds made for people. So he had a lot of good experience. I went up to someone who was running this very small scale business of, of assembling these things. I told him my problem that, you know, I don't have much capital and I want something cheap and, but it has to be functional, but it doesn't have to be polished, but I need it cheap. So in Pakistan, what they do is they still build hand molds. So rather than relying on computers, they just take a piece of metal and they literally just use the chisel and carve it out. And it's so much more cheaper. Um, Of course, it's a bit wonky, but it's still, you can get a functional piece out of it. And it's orders of magnitudes cheaper. So if I was here, I would not have been able to do it. But in Pakistan, I found this this niche where they were assembling hand molds. So they take a softer metal and then they carve out whatever you give them. 
and yeah, they, they, they designed this mold for me. And then using those molds, I was able to get my, the plastic boxes for my devices. So uh, it's quite interesting. I think I learned a lot from this experience that, you know, you can leverage these different manufacturing sectors in different countries to design whatever you want in an affordable way. Um, a lot of these manufacturing things in, in first world countries are just too expensive. You really oh, can't yeah. afford to do that. Where, and, as well, did you ever kind of, when you were doing these things, obviously like to take, clearly like to take a lot of things on your own shoulders um, and do a lot of the work yourself and clearly have an insatiable desire for learning. Did you ever kind of think, I need a partner here, either singular or multiple kind of co-founders, maybe an operating partner that would help you achieve your goals? Um, so I think my business and the whole structure of it, is, as you've heard the story, it's quite unconventional. It's more like something I have designed and I'm going yeah. to manufacture it and sell it. So I guess in that structure, it didn't really make sense. But uh, but I do I do have uh, people sort of working for me or, or working with me. I think that would be better. So one thing that I sort of didn't struggle with, but the, the issue was there are a lot of people who would want these devices, but because of my PhD and everything, I didn't have time to actually market these devices and to deal with a lot of the problems that come with it, right? A lot of these people don't really know how to install it. So they have a lot of questions and mm. it's only so many people you can answer before it just gets overwhelming, especially with university and yeah. uh, PhDs. So I've, I found a few people who are actually the person who actually first pitched this idea to me that can you design this thing for me? I'm still working with him and he's, he's supported me a lot. So so he's basically um, dealing with the, I would say, the marketing of things. So he receives calls from people, he deals with them, ma manages the problems and sort of ships it out for me, right? Yeah. Uh, I also do a lot of the shipping, but he's sort of managing that, that aspect of it. So I think you definitely need a, in terms of a technical person, no, I think I was, the scale was sufficient for me to deal with it myself. But, but the other sectors of actually uh, assembling it and then packaging it and posting it, uh, talking to customers on a regular basis, dealing with their issues. Uh, yeah, I definitely needed people for that, even though I was happy with doing that initially. But once you start getting hundreds or thousands of customers, you you really can't <laughs> as, as a one person deal with that. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and Adil, so now that you have your supply chain set up, you're, you're making sales, you, ha you have your, your partner co slash co-founder, business partner, reaching out, doing the marketing. If you were to prioritize one, well, to prioritize one thing for your business over the next year, what, what would that be? Like, what are you looking, are you looking to grow, maintain, keep it there as like an income on the side? Like what, what is the, what does next year look like for the business? Yeah. So currently what I'm trying to do mainly, um, something that's relevant for everybody in the electronic businesses, as you've probably heard in the news that there has been a massive semiconductor shortage, right? In terms of Absolutely. chips. So, I mean, my business has been hit quite massively because of that. The issue of course, is that a lot of the components that I used are no longer in stock. So right. I can either park the business for a few years or essentially try and do a massive R&D to try and keep up with it. And that's what I've done. So basically it was so funny what I had to do was check what parts are in stock this week and then within a few days try and engineer a new one using whatever is available. So at this stage, I have about five variants depending on which one I can fucking find stock for. So currently I'm in, on the technical side and the, the product is stable in terms of functionality, but I'm just trying to somehow find ways around this, this part shortage. So that's what's happening on the technical side. 
And uh, yeah, I guess I'm always looking to expand the business, trying to find more customers. Currently, I feel that I am a bit of a bottleneck myself in terms of how much units I can sort of churn out every month. So, I was gonna, I was gonna say that actually, Adil. So quite quickly, how do you manage the balance between the the business and university and your studies? I think it's quite it's quite difficult. I guess the the for me the main thing was trying to spend time efficiently to try and automate a lot of this stuff. So now uh, all of these processes are automated. So the assembly, um, the packaging, um, the testing, everything is automated. Yeah. And I guess that this is the only way to do it. So I, I, of course, initially it takes a lot of time to to set these things up. But um, one thing I did learn was. At first, I would not spend time with trying to make the process streamlined for the future. I would, I would think, okay, let me just try and complete this delivery. But then I said, okay, let me spend a bit more time, try and automate it, even though it's taking me more time, but in the future, it's going to save me time. Um, and that's how I focused on this thing. So try and automate it now. And then once it's automated, I don't have to get involved in, in this too much. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's how that's how I how I've managed to do it. And I think it's it's important to do this because for me, after some time, I started to lose interest in the business a bit because, you know, for me, it was initially a technical thing. Can I, it's a technical difficulty. Can I solve this problem? You know, if I'm being honest, the business side of it didn't really sort of fascinate me initially. It was more of, can I solve this technical problem that I have in front of me? So once that's been solved, the actual business side of it can get a bit laborious. So you have to make sure you have processes in place to to take that off you so you can focus on on the next thing, right? I don't want to focus on the, the nitty-gritty technical details anymore. I want to look at the next thing because I've done that. So I think, yeah, just trying to find the right people that can help you manufacture uh, whatever you're working on. Yeah, the streamline it in for the future. So you have automated processes in place to to take it off your hands, essentially. And yeah, then yeah. you can focus on the next one. So so is, is that kind of when, you're, when your PhD wraps up, what do you envisage yourself doing from a personal perspective? Do you maybe want to spend kind of, you said you're traveling, but that's for work. Do you maybe... Want to travel more for pleasure? Do you want to have more time to yourself? Or are you very much one of the, I'm sure a lot of the audience can kind of make their mind up themselves, but you seem very much someone who always likes to stay busy, doesn't really give themselves much time off. Like yeah. Mind active. <laughs> yeah, I think that that is, that is, a <laughs> is that an accurate assumption? <laughs> yeah, very accurate. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think for me, it's, um, I think it just, it runs in our family. Even my dad's uh, very much like this, that, if our brain's not busy, I know then it, you start to do dumb shit, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, so, but that's for our secondary podcast. We'll do it. <laughs> so yeah, you just have to stay uh, busy. And for me, it's it's the technical challenges. So I think I really necessarily don't get technical fulfillment from uh, from this business anymore in terms of yeah how it appeals to my technical side. Yeah. So for me, I think I'll always try and keep on looking for more and more technical challenges. That's why I guess I did the PhD trying to uh, challenge myself in, in, in different ways and trying to, yeah, just maybe I am trying to expand. Maybe there's a different product line that I, that, that I can look into uh, mm. that needs some more new technical development. Um, but yeah, I'm always, I think that's how I've been able to actually crack this device to begin with at a relatively young age. Just, just wanted to see, I saw that as a challenge and I thought, you know, I won't let this defeat me. Uh, even though, yeah. I mean, I spent a lot of time just trying to, trying to understand how these things work. And now I realize that when I was 16, 15, 16, I didn't even have the basic understanding of how these things work. But it was just that because I wanted to keep myself technically challenged, I was able to, to Adapt crack that and grow, grow yeah, along exactly. the journey. Yeah. All right. So that's been a fantastic segment about the business itself. Hmm. I think 
just uh, for, for me to personally quickly summarize myself of what, what your business does. So you're designing the, the circuit boards, yeah. then sending them to suppliers to be made, and then mechanics then the one the one part i was unsure about i will keep this quick because we have we have we want to do like a quick fire questions at the end unrelated to the business more more about like a bit of fun basically sure but from the point that it's the supplier has supplied it then you send it to the manufacturer they send it to the car manufacturer to have their own mechanics put it into the into the cars or who no, actually puts it into the it's, car it's it's the uh, mechanics of essentially people who might import the cars or sell the cars here you see okay. so once they bring the cars in here, they can't sell them until they, they right. They, okay, so it's a, it's an external. So yeah, those exactly. are the people. You're, those are your customers. Those mechanics. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, those are are my customers, and that's actually a very interesting point. That you know, when this chip shortage happens, or sometimes if I get bored of the business, I wasn't motivated enough to actually during the chip shortage. I wasn't that motivated to keep it going. I said, okay, let me just take a month and just chill until the stocks improve. And then I'll restart the business. But this is, I guess, here's an interesting point that I that I learned from the business that actually inspired me a lot. Was I was talking to one of this this mechanic, and he came up to me and he said that, "What's happening about the devices? I'm not getting them any this month." And I said, "Yeah, there's a there's a stock shortage. I'm just going to resume it a month later." And he said that, "You know, I can't do that because for me, this is my livelihood. This is how I make money. I take your device and I go ahead and install it in people's cars. So if if you your devices and if you don't supply me with the device, I can't make my living." And that really hit me. I said, you know, for me, it's fun and games and, and it's a little challenge and it's these things I sell. But but now people down the line are using that to earn money, to install it in their cars. So you have this added responsibility of, of essentially a lot of people indirectly. So this is one of the reasons I, I guess, motivate myself to, to keep up yeah. sort of ahead of the supply shortage and Absolutely. somehow keep delivering because... I know that now there are people who are relying to take those and install them. And if, if my products are not there, they're stuck. They can't earn their living. Um, so, yeah. All right. Nice. Well, listen, thank you for telling us about the business. And thank just, you for listening. Yeah. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure to hear about all that. But <laughs> Thanks a lot. As a, I think James had one, one quick question, and then we're going to break into some quick fire questions. Yeah, so we won't keep you too much longer. Just oh, no. Five, please, yeah. five, five, ten more minutes. Um, but essentially, what we said at the start about Elon, how do you actually feel about, you know, he's been all over the news recently, I'm sure you're aware of his mm. bid for Twitter. How do you feel about kind of these big tech figures having such a almost control over our everyday lives? And kind of as a follow-up question, what do you think Elon's intentions are with Twitter? Do you think they're malicious? Do you think they come from a good place? I'd just like to see your um, hear your perspective on that. Yeah, I think it's... Uh... It's a tricky uh, question because I think now the, the issue, of course, is that I think a lot of people don't know how to think about these things yet, because I mm -hmm. guess, for example, let's take a, let's say if you have like a dictator, for example, people know how these things function and people know what some end consequences are if you go down that line of maybe following people like that, right? So people yeah. who have sort of like a sort of a messiah type uh, complex or a messiah type yeah, outlook. We're not, we're, not, we're not about to compare Elon to Hitler, just to be clear, but yeah, we're following. <laughs> <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is, I think right now people do really don't know that people like Zuckerberg, for example, or Elon Musk, right? So they have now, they're amassing a lot of power, but what, are, what does that mean for us, right? I think there is, you have to be cautious because I think Elon, of course, is inspiring a lot of people. And I mean, the stuff that they've done with, with SpaceX, for example, they've, I mean, NASA was basically dead and now they've sort of replenished that. And yeah. for a private company to do that, 
with, with, with a lot of subsidies, but but they've managed to do that. So I think it's they've inspired it's, a generation. I mean, he's almost re-inspired kind of a generation. Yeah, yeah, and the, that is back into space travel because I, yeah. I went to Imperial as well. Obviously, I was doing aeronautics. Mm. A number of people went into the did kind of the space module in the third year and fourth year. There's a lot of hype around it. Very exactly, much driven yeah. around yeah. kind of SpaceX. It very much ties back to the point we're making earlier about these figures having such an influence over the lives of you know kind yeah. of everyday students and people. Yeah, and I think uh, it's great, but again, it's the same thing that you have to be careful about. Mm. You will always get some people who are who are going to try to misuse that. I think in the case of Amazon, it's it's a bit more apparent that you know, for example, the labor laws and how they've tried to to manipulate that, and yeah, now they have a monopoly here in in a, in a lot of things. So I guess you have to be careful, but but his positive effect can't be ignored. He has inspired yeah. a lot of people, and I think I one thing that I that I do really like about him is his can-do attitude you know he will just come in and say yeah no we can yeah. do this in like a few months i'll get the the people it's i'll get the right people and, yeah. we'll, and we'll do that and i think i share that attitude mm-hmm. i think that everything is possible if you yeah if you get the right people in in place and uh, you have the right mindset but again you have to be careful like of, of certain procedures and and things like that but it is his the positives are there but you have to be careful about individuals or certain platforms. Having, having to, yeah, an individual having too much say, essentially. Yeah. And if, yeah. I mean, if you got it and he replaced the board, it would be basically unchallenged, right? What, what yeah, it, and I guess his 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 view is that, you know, I want to, because Twitter has been cracking down a lot of, on like uh, free speech. Uh, exactly. In, in a lot of people's yeah. perspective, a lot of sen- right? A lot of censorship and a lot of kind of creating divisive uh, uh, yeah, content, yeah. a lot of kind of hate speech and this and that. And I think the key things are what he wants to do is make the platform open source so everyone can kind of look into the code and it's mm. available for everyone. He wants to also tackle the bot problem as well and just get rid yeah. of all the... The thing is, there's a lot of arguments around that, which is kind of, oh, 20% of Twitter's users apparently are bots. So if you yeah, erase yeah, that, this you're is some, actually, uh, suddenly sorry, losing all of that kind of usership as well. So it's like, yeah, this from is, a shareholder this perspective, is, it's like we don't actually want to get rid of these things. Yeah, and this is this is a big thing that, uh, for example, recently what had happened was that uh, in Pakistan, our prime minister was voted out using a vote of no confidence. Mm. Now, the thing with with our current, with our ex-prime minister, Imran Khan, is that he has got a huge support in the, um, in, in the youth, right? Uh, yeah. Young people support him and his social media campaigns and presence you can't compare them to any conventional politicians that we have in Pakistan, right? Mm. They're just miles ahead. And the way that they've used that to systematically target certain people or proliferate their own campaign is is unprecedented. Like conventional politicians in, in Pakistan did not know how to deal with it. And now that they, they did some analysis, they found that a lot of the traffic generated, yeah, it's not really real, right? It's, a lot of it was, was just bots um, yeah. sort of, um, yeah, sharing things and bringing up trends and things like that. So this is a really this artificial. is a very yeah. yeah. It was very artificial. So this is a realistic problem that we have to somehow somehow deal with it. I mean, just the fake news and stuff, um, and some of the videos yeah. you you get. Uh, and I think in the future it's going to be a bigger problem because now you have very sophisticated ways of synthesizing these things. So deep fakes, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like whenever I used to see fake sort of sources, I used to say, so what? We'll always be able to just tell that, you know, this looks fucking fake. Yeah. But now I think you're going to the point where you can't trust yeah, your you judgment. Can't, you can't trust everything you see. Yeah. yeah Even these kind of old, long-standing kind of traditional media sources, you still, everyone kind of treads very carefully. Everyone, you know, anyone with half a brain at least will kind of look at any piece of news with a question mark and think, is there an agenda here? You know, what, yeah. what kind of side is this person on? Um, yeah. But yeah, I think yeah, that's, I mean, that's more that's more of a world phenomenon, right? I think you know, in the last yeah. ten years or so, 
um, kind of accelerated by certain people, accelerated by the rise of social media. Everything's become very divisive. I think yeah. very more, every, everyone's opinions are a lot more black and white now, it kind of creates a lot more conflict. I mean, that, one so. interesting thing that I saw recently in Twitter was that with the, with the war in, in Russia, right, mm. there have been voices, quite famous voices, um, like an ex-MP of, of the UK, George Galloway, for example, and he's pro-Russia. He just is. He's, he's very anti-imperialist and he's always been sort of anti-Western powers. Yeah. So, he, so he was sort of talking... Uh, a lot about pro-Russian things, and now they've stamped his account with, for example, uh, Russian state-affiliated media. Granted, he did work for like uh, Sputnik, right? That was the RT, Russia Today. So I think now it's quite interesting in Twitter that whenever you express certain views, you, your account gets stamped by by that. So people who were pro-Russian, they've been said Russian state-affiliated affi- media, and some of them are. Wow. Uh, and now you have, for example, anybody from uh, from China, for example, if you see a journalist, you'll say it, you'll see it say Chinese state affiliated media. So you get that stamped on your profile. Yeah, but and almost day, inherently biases people as soon as yeah. they see that. But now what I'm trying to say is, how do you judge? I mean, what's the line defining that this person is an official state? Yeah, as opposed to just just someone that has a positive opinion towards expressing that. their views, right? Now, I guess in in the states, in the U.S., because they assume media is free, I can get any media personality being pro U.S. government, but yeah. they're not going to get a stamp saying pro state U.S. state affiliated media because it's a U.S. company at the end of the day, right? So yeah, so it's a, you know, it's it's a fine line, like um, fine line. But how do you decide these things? Who decides this at the end of the day? Well, the future, the future entails the answers. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting uh, debate. But mo- moving on, so Adil, let's, uh, let's wrap up. We're going to ask a very, very quick fire questions. Sure. And give us, give us the answers. As the rule is you got to give us the answers as fast as possible. Just the one, <laughs> one sentence will suffice. Let's keep it very quick. Okay. I, don't, I don't think Adam's brain comprehends one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> I've been giving out funny try, speeches. Try, out try, try to just write an essay, not a dissertation on each other. <laughs> All right. So just play back on times two, man. Yeah. <laughs> What's the first word that comes to mind when I say success? Hard work. Okay. First word comes to mind when I say excitement. I think my answer to all of this is going to be work, work. First word that comes to mind, passion. <laughs> give, give us a couple. Passion. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know why my cute. brain is like beep bop beep bop bop bop. <laughs> That's not compute. <laughs> System <laughs> malfunction. <laughs> right, Adam, it's how like, about this one? it's best... too simple for my brain to cut how about this one Adam? best place in the world that you've traveled to best place is south africa beautiful but thank god i was hoping you wouldn't say the office <laughs> <laughs> my lab <laughs> no, south africa is just so beautiful like uh cape town johannesburg really really unsafe but <laughs> really beautiful well, we just we just came back from favela in brazil bro we don't know what unsafe Fuck. means yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh what, what would your biography be titled? I've never even thought about these things so deeply, man. Hey, hey the, the rule is quick fire. Don't give me this shit. <laughs> what would my biography be titled? Workaholic. <laughs> yeah, love it, love it. What? Confessions of a workaholic. Go. Yeah. We'll workshop that one. <laughs> uh, one sentence, or final one. One sentence of advice for first-time founders or someone trying to start a business. 
Yeah, I think uh, don't be scared to to put in the work and take risks. I think for me, one of the problems earlier on that was stopping me from expanding out this business was just the fear of, of investment, right? You go from one day where you're dealing with a few hundred pounds to where your investment might be a few thousand pounds. And, and I think at that point, that money seems quite big to you. And I personally used to struggle pulling the trigger on a lot of purchases, for example, for the business, or maybe trying to take the risk to expand it. So I think uh, you it's a cliche, but you have to take risks and yeah. uh, you have to prepare yourself to, to, to take those risks. Couldn't agree more. That's the name of the game. But listen, Adil, absolute pleasure, mate. Thank you so much for speaking to us. It was, it was great, yeah. Personally, I've learned quite a lot from this conversation. It was interesting. <laughs> Oh, no, fascinating was, uh, discussion, Adil. Thanks a lot for your time, man. Well, thank we'll you, get, thank you. It was great. Yeah, it was. We'll get we'll um, get you on for a part two at some point. We can oh, uh, have more uh, less about yeah. the business, more more just digging into all these sort of topics going on in the world. Yeah, I think that'll be that. that that's going to be great. That's going to be, be great. Fantastic session. Yeah, and we'll clear and the whole day the, as well. Yeah, <laughs> thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah, nice six hour in, yeah. <laughs> I need to sort out the uh, the quick fire out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, listen, I'll take care and speak to you soon. All right, thank you. Thank you for for listening. It was really nice to be able to share it with the people you respect. So, uh, yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Looking forward to uh, part two. Pleasure. (laughs) Absolute pleasure. All right, right. see you, Adam. All right, boys, take care. Bye-bye.